Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace. For the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee. Spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel. From Franklin to the nations of the world. All for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. One of the most amazing moments in history happened when Paul was uncertain about which direction to go with his mission, and he had a dream. And in this dream, he saw a man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so the next day, Paul and his companions, uh, they went and left where they were and headed for the first time into Europe into this little region called Macedonia, which was part of this Greek empire that had once been and now broken up into little places. But those ancient cities were still there, places like Philippi and Corinth and Athens and a beautiful city called Thessalonica. And Paul went there and he preached the gospel after he had preached in Philippi and As happened in Philippi, many people believed, but then something else happened. Not only was there a a revival, there was also a riot. Both tended to accompany Paul. And so he was driven out of the city after a short time, somewhere between a few weeks to a few months. That's all he was there. And then he had to leave. And he went on down to Athens and then over to Corinth. But he was always concerned about these new believers back in Thessalonica. He cared for them. He loved them. After all, these are brand new believers. It's the first time the gospel has come to this part of the world, this wild Gentile part of the world, which was so different in so many ways from the cradle of the gospel where the gospel was born in Judea. Now it's entering into the world of Rome and the philosophy of the Greeks and the practices of paganism that were so different than anything regular Jewish believers encountered back home. So now here are these brand new believers. They're just discovering what it means to live as followers of Jesus. And so Paul decides to write to them. And we're going to read this morning his words to this little fledgling Christian community in Thessalonica that he writes to brand new believers. And when you read these words, you're reading Paul's first letter that he ever wrote. And that also means you're reading the very first Christian texts that were ever penned. Paul's letters predate the Gospels. And so here is the heart, the apostolic heart that comes very first, just at the first, for people who are brand new to the faith. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the first 10 verses. If you have a Bible or have it on an app, follow along. If you need a Bible, we have some print versions which are available just here at the back. You can follow along on the screen as well. Listen to the letter that Paul wrote to them. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that these words to these brand new believers would settle in our hearts too and like it strengthened them, strengthen us through the same Holy Spirit given to them who is also here with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Paul writes to these believers and he says, I want to remind you about what it means to walk with the Lord. Verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you've received instruction from us about how you ought to walk and please God. I'm so glad Paul uses that term to describe what it, what it means to be a Christian. Learning to walk, learning to discover what pleases God, learning to walk. These are brand new believers. What's it like for people when they learn to walk? You know, you see a little tiny child and they're just learning to walk. What happens to everybody when they're learning to walk? They fall down. And what does every parent say when they see this little child fall down? They say, get up. What are you doing down on the ground? Shame on you for being on the ground. What are you thinking? That's not what they say. What do they say? They say, oh, let me help you. Oh, you've fallen down. Come on, you're so, come on, hold me. Hold my hand. Come on, you can do this. Paul says, I want to, help you learn to walk. And that means two things. Walking, Paul says, in sexual holiness and walking in sacrificial love. Now, you might not be surprised to think that Paul would talk about sacrificial love for brand new believers. That seems kind of obvious. But you might be surprised to discover that Paul with brand new believers talking about learning to walk in a life that's pleasing to God would bring up a matter like sexual holiness. He does so here in verse 3. He says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. But Paul brings up both because what's happening is He's calling these Thessalonian believers to a whole unique and distinctive way of living in a world that is so different from anything Paul's describing here. Loving and holy. It was an unloving world. 
It was an unkind and ungenerous society. And it was a pagan society that was rampant with immorality. We were just in Greece a few weeks ago. And there in Athens and in Corinth, and you could go to Philippi or Thessalonica, and you could see there just as well as in Corinth or in Athens the ruins of these temples that dotted the area. These temples were where sacrifices were made to these pagan gods that you know from that pantheon of mythology. And their sacrifices were made, but those temples also had prostitutes with them. And it was held that after you made a sacrifice, you would then have sexual union, sexual relations with one of those prostitutes and thereby become one with those gods. It turned out to be a very popular religion. But that is why Paul says to these new believers, this is how you were raised. I know this is the way your culture is, but now you are called to be followers of Jesus. And followers of Jesus, those who are going after him, are going to become like him. One of the things that the church has failed to do in our time is summon people to be followers of Jesus. The message of Jesus is not only to rest in him and what he has done, but to rise and follow him as his disciple. What's a disciple? Well, in the ancient world, that word was used, it's the same word, for an apprentice. What's an apprentice doing? Well, an apprentice is under the hand of a master so that the skills and the ways and the life of that master become the inheritance of that apprentice. He becomes as his master. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You not only believe on him, but you follow after him so that you and I more and more become transformed and conformed to his image. We become like him. And that means a difference and a distinction is made among God's people in love and in holiness. But it's hard for us to have a conversation about these issues, isn't it? It's very difficult for us to talk about these things, especially something like sexual immorality and brokenness. It's hard because in our culture, there's a very intense debate that rages about these issues. It's hard because the church has manifold failures in this area. Whether it's in the Roman Catholic Church and the pedophile priests abusing children or the misogyny and the abuse of children and women in evangelical and Protestant circles. Churches, which were meant to be safe places for people to be healed, turned out to be shelters for those who were predators. And many of us sitting here this morning know the pain of abuse. We're very aware, this is why it's hard for us to have this conversation, of our own sin. And we're also aware of how people have sinned against us and created brokenness in us. And that's why we feel that we need to care for those who are wounded. And those of us who are wounded need care. And so, brothers and sisters, we come to a hard and difficult conversation. But what if the believing community of God's people could become a humble and healing and holy community that never backed away from people in pain, but also never backed away from its core commitments to Jesus' teaching 
a church that embraced both charity in its relationship with people and clarity in regard to its claims for truth. In every church that I've served in, going back to Oxford or London or in Kentucky or in Texas or here, are members with every single kind of sexual brokenness that we can name. And I stand before you with that brokenness as well. We all have within us the impact of the fall raging in us, disordering our desires, trying to lead us away from the one who can fulfill every desire that we have. And that brokenness is there. And so we have to face each other with the reality of that. We have to come humbly towards each other. We have to be able to look at each other and know that brokenness is there and not try to so skillfully hide it. That's vital for us if we're going to receive healing. As Ray said to Kylo Ren, I know who you are behind the cracks in your mask. I thought I'd get a better reaction to that, but there you go. (laughs) How do we have this conversation? Well, we have to have this conversation guided by the Bible as our authority rather than two other possible authorities. Those other two possibilities are our own feelings and experiences on the one hand and the shifting sands of our culture on the other. Both are disloyal and unreliable standards by which we can actually find a place that's going to be our true north as Christians. But of course, that means a right reading of the Bible. Sometimes people approach the Bible as though it were just a list of commandments. Here's the rules. But the Bible is not simply a list of commands. It's a faithful record of God's mercy and love for His unfaithful people who meets us in our sins, who comes to be one with us, who meets us where we are, but in His love refuses to leave us as we are and to change us by His mercy and grace. And that is why Paul writes to these brand new believers and he says, God has called you to a holy love and God has called you to a loving holiness. In these first eight verses, there's a strong emphasis on the holiness that has to do with a very important word, sanctification, sanctification. Well, what is sanctification? Well, sanctification, this word that Paul uses here, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's a word that describes a couple of things. First of all, it means being set aside, kind of like The china you only get out for Christmas and then you put it away. You only get it out for the anniversary celebration. This stuff is special, so we set it aside over here. It's sacred. It's set aside. But it's also a word that describes not only an act of God setting people aside, but a process by which people are transformed and people are changed. So God, in His sanctifying of our lives, is at work to transform us and make us what it describes here, holy, holy. Now, when you hear the word holiness, 
What ha- you say, if I said, I'm going to preach to you today, I'm going to teach you today on holiness. What happens in your emotions? You don't go, oh, that's so great. You go, the impact is like saying, we're going to do a series on Job. Everybody goes, oh my gosh, holiness. It's because we don't understand the glory of this word. The very first time the word holiness shows up in the Bible, of course, it's in Genesis. And it's in Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, it's used of a day, the Sabbath day. And it says God blessed the Sabbath day and called it holy. Well, what's that mean? It means he made a distinction between that day and all the other days. This day is unique. This day is filled with blessing in a way these other days are not. This is a unique day, a holy day. It is a gift to you. So when we first encounter holiness, it's not some rigid rule that says do this or don't do that. It's a gift that says you are unique. Here's what Paul's saying to these Thessalonian believers. In a culture which is characterized by violence and degradation and idolatry, God has called you to be unique, to be holy, to be different in the world. We have always been people as Christians who are called to be different in the world. That has to do with the way we love. It has to do with the way we handle our finances. It has to do with the way we handle relationships. And yes, it it has to do with the way we handle sexuality as well. Sometimes people get the idea that the Bible is against sex. That's not true. If you think the Bible is against sex... I can understand why you would think that because you probably don't read the Bible. But the Bible is full of expressions of sexuality, some good and beautiful and some violent and degrading. Both are present. But it arrives on the scene as a gift from God, as a beautiful expression of a grace that he gives to some. And God celebrates it. And causes us to rejoice in it. Saying, saying that um, Christians are against sex or the Bible's against sex is a little bit like saying that because people are against drunk driving, they're against cars. We're not against driving. We're against drunk driving. It's like fire. Fire in the fireplace. Good. Fire on the curtains, in the roof. Not good. The fire in the fireplace is wonderful. So there's a context for it. And outside that context, it becomes destructive. And that's what Paul is pointing to here when he talks about desires. He talks about that culture they lived in. He says in verse 5, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. Okay, you're all these Gentiles up here in Thessalonica and you're experiencing desires. Now, the word desire, epithumia, that word is used in many different ways. It's kind of a neutral word in in a certain way. For instance, Jesus uses that word in Luke's gospel where he says about the Last Supper, about the communion, I have desired to have this meal with you. So that's a good desire. But there are also desires which can be bad. The issue is the object of the desire. Is what is desired licit and beautiful? 
or illicit and destructive. And so what we find in ourselves as Christians is competing desires. We find in our own hearts desires which are evil and wicked and that nourished give birth to temptation that take us astray. And you and I are called as believers to, as Paul says, crucify the flesh with its evil desires. So there are sinful desires, and these desires are disordered, and they're trying to take us away from the God who ultimately is the one who can fulfill every desire that we have. This is what people are actually seeking. Tim Keller put it this way. There is a music we are born remembering. There is a song. We can hear it. We long for it. C.S. Lewis called it joy, a little taste of it. And once he tasted it as a child, he kept looking for it. Where's that joy? Where's the song? I know there's something more. And we tend to think, if I can just have a relationship with that person or achieve that goal professionally or academically, if I can just secure this much wealth or that kind of position, then my desires will be met. But actually, every one of these desires, and I'll have a lot more to say about this next week, these desires are actually signs which point us beyond themselves to the God who ultimately is our desire. Because as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has put eternity in the heart of man. So there's this eternity-shaped hole inside of us, we keep trying to fill up with other things and other people. The Bible calls those other things and other peoples that we treat that way as idols. An idol is a penultimate thing that we treat as an ultimate thing. It's a secondary thing, a gift, which we turn into a source. And we say, this will be my life. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, you're surrounded by all these idols. I want you to know that your life is found in Jesus. And so you're called to take your body, which is not your own, more about that to come, and offer it to Jesus in his service. To take control of your body, to take control of these desires, and realize that in Christ your life is found. The old Puritan John Owen said, Be killing your sin, or your sin will be killing you. Now, we experience a degree of transformation in these desires. Sometimes it's just a little bit. I've walked with people in all these churches, many of you sitting here today, and some people experience a radical change in their desires. 180 degrees, but I can count on one hand those for whom that's true. It's very rare. Mostly people experience a kind of partial change. And some people experience no change in the presence of those desires at all. They're constantly with them. And they get up every day knowing they have to put those to death and live for the Lord Jesus. One of the brothers I walked with like that, I asked him, what do you do with the knowledge that in your heart every day you wrestle with that? And he said, My sinful desires push me further into the embrace of God's mercy. Our desires can lead us into temptation and towards destruction, or we can acknowledge their presence as Luther taught us and say, yes, we are 
redeemed and we're forgiven, but we are still sinners and we need Christ to come and be our rescue every day. And what that leads us to is a place of love. You see, love fits into this discussion precisely because of what the idolatry of desire can do. He talks in here about transgressing and wronging your brother in the matter. Because when you move over into these areas of sexual unholiness, you end up destroying others. In the ancient world, eros, where we get our word erotic, was a god. And as C.S. Lewis rightly noted, eros honored without reservation and obeyed unconditionally, stopped being a god and became a demon. And that power of darkness goes into our hearts and into our souls and into our thinking and twists our imagination and makes us think that other people are merely the objects of our desire and that is all they exist for. And we think it's only a private matter, but it's not private because our private sins defraud and injure other people. That's what Paul says here. We defraud and injure others. And that's why he says there is an affection, a new affection, which comes to us which is greater than these other affections, a beauty which transcends these other lesser attractions, the beauty of Christ, of God in His glory and splendor. And he says that beauty summons in us God's own nature, love. He says in verse 9, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He says that's what you're doing. But look at the end of verse 10. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In the New American Standard, it says that you excel still more. Grow in love. Grow in holiness. Grow in love. Why those two? Well, holiness and love are God's own nature. Holy, 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 the angels cry out to one another. And the scriptures say in John, not only that he who loves is born of God, it says, for God is love. Love isn't something God has, it's who God is. Holiness isn't something that God has, it's something God is. He is holy in his love and he is loving in his holiness. And he shows this supremely to us in the cross of Christ, which gives life to our souls and gives shape to our community. Love and holiness are not mutually exclusive ideals. They are the best of traveling companions. For when you love someone else, you will seek their good. You will not view them as someone to be taken who can fulfill your pleasures but as someone to be served and who, like you, needs to be healed by the Savior. This means as followers of Jesus, we look to God and seek to live holy lives unto Him. And we look at each other and we try to discover how we can make one another's lives more whole. And this means we are in this process of sanctification. We live between it is finished, that Jesus says on the cross, And it is done, that Jesus says in the book of Revelation. We are not who we once were, but neither are we who we're going to be. And we live right now in the presence of the struggle 
in the presence of the fight. And I want you to know something, friends. I don't want to fight alone. And I don't want you to fight alone. I want all of us to find the grace of God as married people, as singled people, in whatever place God has called you, as old, as young, to discover this, that Jesus said, this is life, to be in a relationship with God. He's the one who will fulfill all your desires. And Jesus brings us into that relationship with God at the cross. Jesus said, I have desired to eat this feast with you. We will come to the table. And as we come, we'll come with grateful hearts because He gave His life for us on the cross to forgive us our sins. And He gives His life to us continually through the Holy Spirit to change us until the day we look just like Him. How many of you are longing for that day? We have a long way to go. Let us love one another to that day. Amen.